You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The book of Acts chapter 10, we're going to read verses 9 through verse 23 of Acts chapter 10. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and he was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him and said, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. But Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for which you've come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and he gave them lodging. It has always been God's intention to bless all the families of the earth and all the nations of the world. That was his intention when he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I've chosen you, come out from amongst your people, I'm going to make of you a nation, and all those who bless you I will bless, and all those who curse you I will curse, and in you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was God's intention. And God's blessing of all the nations and all the people was to happen in two ways primarily. First, from Abraham was to come a nation of people that would be God's witnesses, his testimony, his light, if you will, to all of the other nations around. And the intention was that through their holiness and their righteousness and their goodness, they would display to all of the other nations the loving kindness and the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the holiness of God. And then they would draw people from all other nations to that God. That was the intention. Second, of course, it has messianic overtones. In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That is, in Abraham's seed. Through Isaac, through Jacob, through his son Judah, came a kingly line, David, and through the Davidic line eventually came the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah. And as a descendant of Abraham, and through the blessings of Christ, indeed, all of the nations of the earth have been blessed. Every tongue, every kindred, every tribe, every nation in the world The descendants of all men have been blessed through the sacrifice and the atonement and the grace of Christ. So that has come to pass. But the initial intention of using the nation of Israel never really came to pass. There were the occasional 
Gentile from a pagan nation that would come out like Ruth and others that would come out of the nations and come to God as a result of the work of the nation of Israel. But by and large, that just didn't happen. The nation of Israel, because of its sin, never really was a light to the Gentile nations. They used their election as an excuse for isolation. We're the elect. We are the chosen ones. We are the holy ones. We are the people of God. And you are not. And so they built walls. And they refused to reach out and touch or to have anything to do with the other nations because they isolated themselves and they used their chosen status as an excuse for isolation. And then the law didn't help. All the law that was intended to make them pure and holy and righteous as a people so that God could use them to reach the other nations, that law just served to give them an excuse to isolate themselves and it pampered their arrogance and their pride. And they used that as a reason to just build these walls. But the church has accomplished, by God's grace, what Israel never really accomplished. In the church, all of the nations of the earth have been blessed. The church today is a largely Gentile church, not a strictly Jewish church. We are not an ethnic entity. We're not a black entity, a white entity, a Jewish entity, a Gentile entity. In Christ, none of those things matter. Uh, Paul talks about a mystery which was hidden all the way through the Old Testament, but now has revealed. And listen, here's the mystery. That Gentiles and Jews would be accepted on the same footing, and they would be given the same status on the same basis in the same Savior, and that they would be fellow heirs, fellow members together of God's holy household. So that in the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, black nor white, There's no such thing as Korean Christians and Chinese Christians and Jewish Christians and black Christians and white Christians. None of that makes a whit of difference. Why? Because Christ has, by His death, broken down that wall of division between Jew and Gentile, which was the law, and all of the ordinances contained in it. Everything that served to separate humanity into two groups, Jew and Gentile, has been done away with. So now in Christ, doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, doesn't matter what the shade of your skin is, doesn't matter what your lineage is, it doesn't matter where you come from, how old you are, whether you're man or woman, what nation you come from, what political affiliation you swear to, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is Christ. Because now there's one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one calling, one hope of our calling, and one Savior. All of that's been done away with in Christ. But the apostles were given the commission. You're to go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Matthew 28. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. That was the commission they were given. And they were fine with that. The apostles were fine with that commission so long as they could define all nations as Jews. And so long as they could define remotest parts of the earth as Jerusalem. But they couldn't do that. And it took a persecution in Acts chapter 8 to push the Gospel outside of Jerusalem at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. And it went to the Samaritans. And it couldn't stop there. 
They had to go farther. They had to go beyond Jews, beyond half-Jews, all the way to those dirty, rotten, no-good Gentile dogs, non-Jews. That's where the Gospel was going. But it couldn't get there unless God was able to take the apostles and get them over their prejudices. There was this deep-seated resentment, this deep-seated ethnic prejudice in the heart of, yes, even the apostles. And it was going to take something awesome to get the apostles past this prejudice that they had grown up with. They had grown up believing that anything that was touched by a Gentile was unclean. You couldn't eat food of the Gentile. You couldn't eat food that had been prepared by a Gentile. You couldn't even eat the same food in the presence of a Gentile. You couldn't stay overnight in the house of a Gentile, and you couldn't have a Gentile into your house to spend the night with you. You couldn't allow them onto the property because that would defile your home and all of the holiness. And you couldn't mingle or mix with Gentiles because that would make you unclean. That was the prejudice. That was the deep-seated resentment that they grew up with toward Gentiles. And God had to get them over that to get Gentiles into the church. So what does He do? Well, He prepares Cornelius, a Roman Gentile, for His meeting with Peter. But how's the Gospel going to get from Peter to Cornelius? God's got to do something with Peter. So last week we looked at how it was that God prepared Cornelius for His meeting with Peter. Today we're going to look at how God prepares Peter for His meeting with Cornelius. Is it possible that a Jewish apostle of a Jewish church would preach a Jewish Gospel of a Jewish Messiah to a Gentile? Scandalous! But it had to happen. But Peter had to get over this Jewish hump. Some of those walls that they had built had to start coming down. I think some of them were crumbling. Peter's staying with a tanner named Simon, an unclean occupation. He's watched those half-Samaritan, or half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans get saved. So I think some of these walls, these prejudices, are starting to crumble, but Peter's not jumping at Gentile evangelism. Peter doesn't rush up to a Gentile city and start preaching to Gentile crowds. He's still got something that has to happen in his heart, and God begins to do that in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. We're going to, or Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 9. We're going to see how God prepares Peter for his meeting with Cornelius. God sends to Peter two things. First, a vision. Look at verse 9. Acts chapter 10. On the next day, they were on their way approaching the city. You see, when we left Acts 10 last week, Cornelius had dispatched his two servants and a devout soldier, the soldier for protection for his servants on the way, down to the city of Joppa from Caesarea. Caesarea was a 35-mile trip, about a 10-hour journey. You remember that Cornelius had been praying at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon. So he immediately calls his servants in. And he says, this is what the angel has said to me. Run to Joppa and fetch a man named Peter who's staying at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. He has a message for us. You go get him. So they leave immediately, three o'clock in the afternoon. It's a ten-hour trip. So on the next day at about noon, because they've stayed somewhere overnight, they're approaching the city of Joppa. And it just so happens that at about noon, Peter is hungry. They're making meal preparations inside the house. So Peter goes up on the roof of the house. They don't think of that in terms of roofs like we have them in those days and in, in, at that place. They oftentimes had flat roofs on their houses and an outside staircase that would go up onto the top of their house. They would use the, the area up above. Sometimes they had an upper room. Do you remember that's where um, Dorcas was at? They laid her body in the upper room. Some houses just had flat roofs and they would put like a canopy up there 
And they would sit up there during the hot summer days and they would feel that Mediterranean breeze blow in off the coast and keep them cool. They would sleep outside underneath that canopy in the hot summer months rather than inside the house. Peter goes up there because he can, he can get some quiet, he can get some shade, he can get some peace. And he's up there and the text says that he was hungry. His stomach is talking to him. And he goes up there to pray. But while he's praying, he's also hungry. And inside they're making preparations down below. Now, as Peter is praying, his thoughts are thinking about food. His mind is thinking about food because he's hungry. He's desiring to eat. And you know how it is when we were praying this morning before the service. You're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner after the service. You're thinking about that 80-year-old cake that I promised you and the coffee that's across the street. And your mind is thinking about dinner tonight and the roast you put in the oven, forgetting you're not going to be able to get home in time this afternoon. And while I'm praying, you're all thinking about other things, right? Don't deny it. Everything that's pressing in upon you, your mind is going over. Very difficult sometimes to forget what our body is saying and what our, our stomach is saying and concentrate upon the business at hand. Peter is having such difficulty. And friends, they're inside downstairs preparing the food. You can smell it. Roast lamb. And he can smell the onions and he can smell that food and he can hear the dishes clanging together and the, the ruckus down below and he can, he can hear and smell that food cooking over that fire and his salivating and his stomach is just going crazy and it's it's gurgling and it's churning and he can't wait to eat and God takes that opportunity to give him an audio visual object lesson and Peter falls into a trance and he sees coming down from heaven a sheet the word is a sail it's the same word used for sail so maybe he's glancing out over the Mediterranean and he sees some sailing ships out there and those sails somehow kind of work them way into this trance vision thing that he has, but he sees this sheet being lowered down out of heaven by four corners. Perhaps there is an angel on each corner and they're lowering this down. And Peter sees something that to him as a Jew is scandalous. On this sheet are all of these animals, clean animals and unclean animals. Now I mean clean and unclean not in terms of some animals had been to the, the groomer down at the vet and they had been cleaned up and been given a haircut. I mean clean and unclean in terms of Old Testament dietary restrictions. Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 12 gave to them all of the things that they were to know about what animals they could eat and what animals they couldn't eat. They could eat an animal if it chewed its cud and if it had a split hoof. So cattle, oxen, sheep, antelope, deer, all of those were clean animals because they fit that description so they could eat those. But they couldn't eat the pig because although it had a split hoof, it didn't chew its cud. And they couldn't eat the camel because although it had a split hoof, it didn't chew its cud. And there were restrictions given for all of the birds of the air, everything that was considered unclean. They were given lists in Scripture about what they could eat of birds and what they couldn't eat of birds. They were given lists about what they could eat of marine creatures. had to have scales and it had to have fins. No lobster, no crab, no shrimp. None of the good stuff. All they could eat was scaly fish. Those were the clean fish. Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 12. Luke says Peter sees on their four-footed beasts, creeping animals, all kinds, and birds of the air. There's turkeys, geese, ducks. Friends, there is a cornucopia of animal selection for Peter. Both clean and unclean. There are clean animals on there like deer and oxen and sheep. There's a camel, there's a rock badger, there's a skunk, 
There's a squirrel, there's a rabbit, there's chickens, there's, there's snakes, there's reptiles, there's things that crawl on their stomachs. Everything that you might conceive of as, as in the animal kingdom was on this blanket that was lowered down. And Peter is gazing upon this spectacle. And he is looking at this and he's saying, this is a disgusting mixture of animals. And he hears a voice that says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. That is disgusting. Because this animal mixture on this blanket was calculated to disgust Peter. God could have lowered down a whole bunch of clean animals and one unclean animal, but He doesn't do that. He puts on this sheep a cornucopia, a mixture, an abundance of animals that's all mingled and mixed together in such a way that it turns Peter's stomach and he can't even hardly look upon it. It's disgusting to him. Any Orthodox practicing Jew who held to the Old Testament dietary restrictions would have been nauseated by the very sight of it, let alone the thought of getting up and killing something and eating it. And Peter cannot bring himself to obey the Lord. Listen, he knows whose voice it is that he's hearing because he heard it for three years. He knows who is talking to him. But he says, by no means, Lord, nothing unclean has ever passed these lips. I have never eaten a piece of bacon, a ham sandwich, a pork chop, or eaten a rabbit in my life. Nothing that is unclean has ever touched this mouth of mine. He finds it easier to disobey the Lord than to disobey his cultural taboos and his customs and his prejudices that he had been raised with. Now you say that there's clean animals on the sheet and unclean animals on the sheet. Why doesn't Peter just outsmart the Lord, stand up and say, okay, I'll kill a clean animal and eat a clean animal. Why doesn't Peter do that? Here's the significant little detail. The presence of these unclean animals with the clean animals makes the clean animals unclean. So even though there is a sheep there that by all dietary restrictions in the Old Testament was a clean animal, he could eat it, its presence next to that camel and that rock badger and the skunk standing behind it made it unclean. So even the clean animals he couldn't eat because they were unclean because of the mixture that was on the sheet. And so Peter believed the presence of these unclean animals with the clean animals makes the clean animals unclean. So he couldn't eat it. That's a significant little detail. Because the question is, can Gentiles and Jews be brought together in the same church? Won't the presence of that which we consider to be unclean make all of us who are clean unclean? So he says, no, Lord. Those two words that don't go well in the same sentence together, aren't they? No, Lord. Lord implies mastery. It implies a servant-master relationship. He's addressing the risen sovereign of the universe. He is hearing Jesus say to him, Peter, this is what I want you to do. And Peter cannot bring himself to do it. No, Lord. And I think of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I say to do? People are like that all the time. It doesn't take you long in your travels to run across somebody who claims Jesus is their Lord, but has never known an obedient day to Him in their whole lives. They don't know what it means to obey Him, to actually do what He says to do. And Peter falls into this trap. In a not very well thought out sentence, no, Lord, I can't because that's unclean and nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. 
So he can't bring himself to obey the Lord. It's easier to disobey the Lord than to disobey this prejudice that has been ingrained in him since birth. So he says no to the Lord. And the Lord says, Peter, don't call something unclean that I have cleansed. Don't pronounce something as taboo that I have pronounced as okay. Don't call something unclean that I have cleansed. Peter sees these animals sitting there. And he's got to be thinking to himself, is it really possible that God has cleansed these animals? How can that possibly be? No wonder he's perplexed. Peter thinks he's standing on some good biblical arguments. Listen, he could stand all day long on Leviticus 11 and 12 and say, there are unclean animals, Lord. Your Word says so. All the dietary restrictions in the Old Testament say that these animals are unclean. And I can stand right here on Leviticus 11 and 12 and say, no, Lord, I can't do it. And he can also appeal to Ezekiel. Chapter 4, Ezekiel was commanded to eat defiled food as a prophet and as a prophetic utterance to the nation. And Ezekiel said, not from my youth has anything unclean ever passed my lips, Lord. Ezekiel argues with the Lord. So Peter's got good precedent. He's probably thinking of the same command given to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 4. He's thinking of Leviticus chapter 11 and he thinks his argument is solid. What he doesn't realize is that his argument doesn't have a thing to stand on because Leviticus 11 is no more. No more dietary restrictions. So God says to him, what I have pronounced clean, you do not pronounce unclean. Peter didn't get it. He didn't get it. Luke says this went on three times. Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Lord, I'm hungry, but I'm not that hungry. I'm hungry, but I'm not hungry enough for a ham sandwich. I'm not hungry enough for a BLT. I would rather starve to death than eat something unclean. Peter, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. Now get up and kill and eat. Oh, not again. Three times. Seems like every time Peter's given his command has in multiples of three, right? Lord, I can't do that. That's unclean. Peter, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. And as soon as the third utterance comes from heaven, Peter sees the sheet lifted up from earth into heaven and it disappears. And he kind of comes too. I want you to notice something that's significant about that. The vision came from where? Heaven. See, here's an object lesson in itself. The sheet comes down out of heaven with all of these unclean animals on it. Where did the unclean animals come from? Well, in the vision, it comes right from the presence of God. That's unthinkable. And then when the vision is taken up again, he sees all of these unclean animals go up into the presence of God and disappear. That's horrifying. That's abhorrent to his mind. The idea that a, a pig and a rock badger, rock badger and a skunk and a squirrel and all these unclean animals could ascend into the very presence of God and disappear there. And he's perplexed by this. He's got to be asking himself, how does this apply? I don't understand this. How is it that God could make something that was unclean, clean and pronounce it to be so? And what kind of implications does this have for my life and for my ministry, does it mean that the work of Christ now is broader in its scope and broader in its application than just to us Jews? All of these things must have been pouring through his mind. Or maybe he's thinking to himself, I wonder what this has to do with lunch. Is that smell that I'm, is, is Simon roasting for me a skunk downstairs that I'm supposed to go down and eat and the Lord wants me to eat that skunk? What is the application of this vision? That's what Peter is wondering. Because you'll notice in verse 
verse 17, Peter's greatly perplexed in his mind, and he's thinking through what he's just seen, what he's just heard, and he's wondering to himself, what's the point of this vision? He knows it's not just something he didn't have for lunch. He knows it's more than hunger pains that brought this on. He knows that the Lord is trying to teach him something. And so he's thinking through all that he's seen, and then the Lord sends him the second thing. Not only does he get a vision, but Peter receives a visitation. Look at verse 17. He was perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. And behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And they stayed outside the gate. Why did they stay outside the gate? They knew that no Jew wanted a Gentile on their land inside their gate. So they come up to the gate, and from there they call out, is Peter, who's called Simon, staying here? Now Peter's perplexed in his mind as to what all of this means, but friends, you and I understand what it means. You and I understand the theological truth. Because the vision is not an allegory. It's not some spiritualized thing. It's more than just an object lesson. The Lord is communicating a theological New Testament truth. And the truth is this. The dietary restrictions and the laws are no more. All of those ordinances that were contained in the law about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat and how you could eat it, they're done away with. You can mix meat and dairy now and have a cheeseburger. Thank you, Lord. You can eat lobster and crab and shellfish now. All of those dietary restrictions are done away with. That's the central truth that the Lord is communicating to Peter. He wants Peter to understand this. So that Peter can understand this has application beyond just what I'm going to have for lunch today. This has application to his ministry, his life. And yes, Peter is going to find out it has application to how he views other men and women who may or may not be Jews. Who may have black skin or red skin or yellow skin. Has application far beyond what he's going to be eating in the next few days. I just had a friend ask me a few weeks ago, why is it that Seventh-day Adventists don't eat pork? And I grew up with a Seventh-day Adventist great-grandmother. My great-grandmother was a Seventh-day Adventist. Wouldn't touch pork to save her life. They raised pork. Her kids will raise pork and sell the pork, but they won't eat pork. They won't even eat a hot dog unless, it's, unless it says 100% pure beef. And you know that's just beef and beef byproducts. <laughs> they won't even eat anything that even has a hint of pork in it. They'll raise pork and grow pork, sell pork. To me, that's like saying, I don't raise pot, I just sell pot. <laughs> Something is unclean, you shouldn't touch it, you shouldn't have anything to do with it. So my friend asked me, why is it the Seventh-day Adventists don't eat pork? And my response to him was, they do not understand the simple truth that the dietary restrictions are no more. That law, that fence of ordinances, which separated the Jews from everybody else, has been done away with, so that now there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. There's no such thing as Gentile believers and Jewish believers. There's believers. And race has nothing to do with it anymore. They don't understand Leviticus 11 is no more. You can eat what you want. You want to go home this afternoon and eat roasted armadillo? You go for it. You can do that. You can eat anything you want. It's not what goes into a man that defiles a man because it goes into his stomach and is eliminated, Jesus said. It's what comes out of us that defiles us because out of our mouths our heart speaks. And our heart is wicked. The issue is not what goes in. The issue is what comes out. And Mark says after he recorded Jesus' words, Mark in Mark chapter 7 verse 23 says, Thus Jesus pronounced all foods clean. It's all clean now. You can eat all of it. Well, Peter's beginning to grasp this. 
that there are some theological implications to this. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that false teachers teach doctrines of demons, and among those, Paul says, are those who restrict certain foods and say that you should abstain from certain foods which are created by God to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Romans chapter 14, don't judge your brother about what he eats. If he wants to eat pork, let him eat pork. If he wants to eat armadillo, let him eat armadillo. If he enjoys roasted skunk, let him eat roasted skunk. Don't go to him with a verse in your hand and say, you can't eat that. Paul says you can't judge your brother on those terms. Colossians chapter 2, let no man judge you in regard to food or drink or Sabbath keeping or new moons or festivals. All of those things are a shadow and Christ is the substance. So in Christ, it's all clean. That's the central truth. Peter's not quite getting it just yet. There's still something that has to happen. These men show up at the gate, three of them, and they call out, is Simon, who is called Peter, staying here? They've asked directions. They've arrived at Simon's house. From outside the gate, they call in there, and someone answers to them, obviously, yes, he is staying here. Peter is up on the roof, and, and probably not far from the gate, but his mind is thinking about this vision. He's really not paying attention to what's going on outside of the rooftop because he's perplexed in his mind as to what the vision means. And the Spirit speaks to him and says, Get up, Peter. There's three men outside the gate who are looking for you, and I want you to go with them without misgivings because I've sent them myself. So Peter gets up from the roof, he comes down that external staircase, and he makes his way out to the gate. And folks, I don't think it is until he arrives at the gate that he realizes the point of the vision. Because notice that the Spirit didn't say to him, Peter, there are some unclean Gentiles outside the gate who are looking for you. The Spirit didn't say that. The Spirit did not even say, Peter, there are Gentiles outside the gate who are looking for you. He just said there are three men. Why is that significant? Because for God, there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter. There's three men. That's the clue to Peter. There's three men. So he makes his way down, probably thinking in his mind, still wondering about the purpose of the vision, wondering what this could mean. He arrives at the gate, and what does he see? Three unclean, oh, excuse me, three Gentiles. Can't call them unclean anymore, can he? And I think then Peter probably realized, okay, there's a connection here. There's a connection between the vision I've seen because the Spirit spoke to me those three times to get up, kill, and eat. And now He said to me, get up and go downstairs. There's three men outside the gate. Peter's been through this thing three times. Get up, kill, and eat. No, Lord, don't call it unclean. Get up, kill, and eat. No, Lord, don't call it unclean. Get up, kill, and eat. No, Lord, don't call it unclean. Now get up and go outside. There's three men standing there. One man for every person that he had pronounced unclean or every time that Peter had been told not to call something unclean. And so Peter arrives at the gate. He sees three Gentiles there. One of them is a soldier. What do you want? What have you come here for? And they tell him the whole story. Yesterday, Cornelius, a God-fearing and righteous man, well spoken of by all of the Jews, was in prayer at the ninth hour. He saw an angel who gave him direction to send for you because this angel said, you have a message for Cornelius. And so we've come. So Peter's confronted by three Gentiles who just moments earlier he would have said they're unclean. Now he's had the vision and the Gentiles are saying to him, come with us. And Peter knows that means I've got to travel two days with unclean Gentiles. And if we leave tonight, then that means I'd at most have to spend one night with these men. But Peter's not even to the point of calling these men unclean. I think Peter gets it. I think Peter understands the whole thing now. His initial response would have been to say, I can't go. You're unclean. 
Oh. Yeah, I get it. Don't call unclean what God has cleansed. Did Peter learn the lesson? Verse 23. He invited them in and gave him lodging. How would you like to have a guest like Peter? Peter's staying at the home of Simon, a tanner, and Peter makes an invitation to bring these three men in. Listen, dinner is ready. It's all prepared. It's the noon hour. Here's three weary travelers, hungry men, showing up at the gate. Peter going to turn them away? If he turns them away, what can he possibly say to them? What kind of excuse could he possibly give? He can no longer say, well, they're unclean Gentiles, non-Jews, so I can't have anything to do with them because God has just gone to great lengths to show him that Gentiles are not unclean. That his prejudices mean nothing. And they have no basis. And so Peter invites them in. And they stayed the night with Peter. That is to say that he, he gave them lodging, he gave them food, he gave them drink. He entertained them. They came into a Jewish home. And Peter, a Jewish man, stayed with Gentiles in a Jewish home. And do you think for one moment that Peter said, oh, they're unclean? I don't think he did. He understood now. So you're going to see when he gets to Cornelius, Peter says, I know now. I know now the truth, that God shows no partiality to no men. That's what God had to do to Peter, to get Peter's attention and to show to Peter, you cannot any longer draw lines between Jews and Gentiles and use your race, your ethnicity, and your upbringing as an excuse to shun other people. And now Gentiles are going to be brought into the church because God showed to Peter this distinction means nothing. And now I ask you, what prejudices do you live with? Who is it that you think you're too good to break bread with? Because you think they're unclean. You have somebody who has a different skin color, a different ethnicity, a different background, a different nationality, a different political persuasion, a different social standing than you that you work with or that you work for or that you employ that you automatically pass judgment on because they are a certain color or a certain type of person? Or you think somebody who grew up in that culture and in that environment, they can't possibly be as smart, smart as us white folk. you racist like that? Do you use skin color as an excuse to look down on somebody or to prejudge, which is what a prejudice is? It's a prejudgment. Are you prejudiced and prejudged towards an individual because of their skin color or because of their background or because they're richer than you, poorer than you, dumber than you, smarter than you, darker than you, lighter than you, taller than you, shorter than you? Friends, the church in the world is still divided over race. And racism in the church is sin. That's all it is. It is sin. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Japanese, Korean, Russian, French, German, none of that matters. None of it matters one whit. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. And there is no such thing as a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. So do you hold prejudices against other people? Do you think you're too good to break bread with so-and-so? because of something in their background or something in their person. Friends, that's sin. And that's a wall that has to come down. Unfortunately, in the church, the things that should divide us don't, and the things that sh shouldn't divide us do. we got black churches in America, white churches in America, Korean churches, Chinese churches, Russian churches. we got churches based upon every shade of skin color, ethnicity, background, country, nationality, denomination that you can possibly imagine. But the one thing that should divide us, truth, doctrine, philosophy, the Word, doesn't. We pitch that out and say, oh, we all need to get together and show our unity in Christ. While we still refer to black Christians, white Christians, Chinese Christians, friends, that all, that's sin. 
That's what it is, a sin. And those walls have to come down. They had to come down in the heart of Peter because he had been raised. you got to hate those Gentiles, Peter. They eat unclean animals, and that makes them unclean, and God doesn't want you to touch them. And now because of God's preparation of Peter and because of God's preparation to Cornelius, the gospel could come to Cornelius. And God was going to use this once prejudiced Galilean fisherman to bring the gospel to the Gentile community and to include Gentiles in the church for the very first time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that in Christ it does not matter who we are, what our skin color is, or what our background is, but that you accept us on the basis of our faith. We thank you that you do not show partiality to any man, but that you have blessed all the nations and all men in Christ. And it is in him that we find our unity, our fellowship, and our love for each other. Because in him there is neither black nor white, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, but we're all one in Christ. Thank you, Father, for taking that dividing line, that fence that separated all of humanity out of the way, in order that the Gentiles might also believe and find repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you in his name and by his grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.